Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I've been doing some thinking on and off for a while now. Hope. It's easy for me in the daily grind, and especially I think right now, uh, and in the primordial soup of culture, to lose track of this vital Christian attitude and perspective. Remember, hope is one of the big three, right? The eternal three, faith, hope, and love. But at times, I find myself, you know, drinking the social media Kool-Aid and, and or waging war over politics or I stress about financial worries, health concerns and, and COVID craziness and worries about the future and my kids and just generally sort of my lack of ability to control pretty much anything. And so I'm hoping that this morning we can together reconnect with this critical idea called hope. And I want to say a word about the definition of hope. Matt just read the passage for us, and in the version he used, in verse 2, you see the phrase, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. The idea of boasting can sometimes have a kind of a negative connotation. So this morning, as we talk about hope, I want you to also hear the words confident assurance. Hope and confident assurance. One of my favorite characters in fiction comes from C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia. And it's this guy, the mouse, Reepicheep. Reepicheep is a talking mouse, as are most animals from the land of Narnia. And I love this character because of his integrity, his honor, his courage, and his confident hope that no matter what difficulties or challenges present themselves, things will turn out right in the end. One scene from The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, book three in this series, is a good example of who Reepicheep is and his attitude to life. Our adventurers have been on a long voyage, and upon sighting land, they put ashore to look for provisions, and they end up spending the night on the large island. And we pick up this brief scene from Lucy's perspective. Later in the night, Lucy was waked very softly and found the whole company gathered close together and talking in whispers. What is it, said Lucy. We must all show great constancy, Caspian was saying. A dragon has just flown over the treetops and lighted on the beach. Yes, I'm afraid it's between us and the ship. And arrows are no use against dragons, and they're not at all afraid of fire. With your majesty's leave, began Reepicheep, and I imagine him here drawing his tiny little sword, right? With your majesty's leave, no, Reepicheep, said the king very firmly. You are not going to attempt single combat with it. Reepicheep, on hearing of this massive and deadly danger, and despite being only two feet tall and not at all impervious to fire, thinks to himself, well then, I'll just go and get rid of this beast. Unafraid, not worried about the impossibility of the task. Very matter of fact. And you might think this is a good illustration of courage, but maybe an odd illustration in a sermon about hope. But the kind of courage that is willing to attempt the impossible and that believes, despite all evidence to the contrary, this courage that brings light to dark places is grounded in and made possible only 
by the kind of confident hope and confident assurance that our passage for this morning is talking about. It's the kind of hope that knows, no matter what the difficulty or painful reality or challenge or obstacle that we're facing, God is in control. This hope prays, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, not as a plea, but as a statement of fact. Confident hope is a birthright of those who are in the kingdom of God. Throughout history, hope and her sturdy sibling courage have been part of the character of God's people. Job, in the middle of terrible suffering and loss, says, Though he slay me, still I will hope in him. Abraham, when being asked to sacrifice Isaac, is obedient in hopeful confidence that God's purposes and plans and promises will be fulfilled. The young boy David has so much confident hope in the fact of God's victory over the giant that he really doesn't understand what all the fuss is about. Sure, I'll I'll go take on Goliath. God will deliver him into my hands. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego facing certain death in the fiery furnace, say, God is able to deliver us. But even if he has other plans, we have a hope that goes beyond this life. And the Apostle Paul, facing suffering and death, and saying, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a win-win situation. There is no path that leads to a loss when we put our trust in Jesus. In fact, God through Jesus has already overcome the power of death in the life of the Christian. Verse 1 says, Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Earlier in Romans, Paul describes in great detail humanity's plight without Jesus. Quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, he says that without Jesus, everyone is under the power of sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul describes lives filled with every kind of wickedness and says, in that condition, we were under a death sentence. We were stuck. There was no hope. Slaves to sin, spiritually dead, at war with God, destined for judgment and death. But, Paul says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Little neighborhood of the universe called planet Earth. Who's here? There's God. You know, creator of the universe and everything in it. God's perfect and right and just and true. Not a single bad thing about him. Then there's me. Now, there's something like a kajillion miles between me on Earth and God in Heaven, and no way to get from here to there, because of a thing called... Sin. You know, selfishness, disobedience, lying, cheating, hating, doing wrong, even when I know what's right. My list of sins goes on and on. My sin makes it impossible for me to get to a perfect God. I'm stuck, doomed to die in my sin, far from God. Unless someone came to rescue me. Help! Jesus! He's my rescuer! God loved me so much that he became a human person and died for me so I wouldn't have to. And as perfect God, 
he was able to bridge that uncrossable gap between me and him. He's the only hope, the only way between sinful, imperfect me and perfect, loving God. The only thing I can do to be rescued is... Come on. Trust. That's it. Put my trust in him to rescue me from my sins and allow me to live forever with him. I've been rescued! Rescued. This is cause for hope. A little further on in this chapter, Paul describes the event of a person's salvation in relational terms. He says, Our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son. And now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Jesus ushered us into grace, a new and unbroken relationship with our Heavenly Father, walked from death to life, from spiritual darkness to light, from rebellion and hostility to peace. It is now possible for human beings to live as we were designed to live, a life of joy and hope and abundance. And I'll be honest with you, I often need that reminder. As I said before, it's easy for me to get lost in the voices that want to highlight my brokenness, the places where I just don't measure up. And admittedly, some of those voices are inside my own head. But also, we live in a culture that wants to label and describe and neatly box us, categorize us in terms of lesser or more value based on any number of perceived inadequacies. Things like gender and race and political affiliations, the number of social media followers I have, or, or even more importantly, how many likes I got on the last post that I, that I put up. My income level, or maybe even the square footage of my carbon footprint. And so, this reminder that despite my brokenness, maybe even because of it, I stand through Jesus in a position of grace, forgiven, at peace with my Creator, that is hope. Whatever else is going on in the world around me, that's hope. So for the follower of Jesus, our current position is one of peace with God and therefore one of hope. But the passage goes on to say, at the end of verse 2, we also rejoice in the hope and confident assurance of sharing the glory of God. Now we, we fear death and the reality is we were not designed or intended for death. For the Christian, however, death is simply the removal of the physical limitations that keep us from experiencing the full grace of God. Right now, due to our human limitations, we view the supernatural only vaguely. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians, now we see things imperfectly, like puzzling reflections in a mirror. But then, we will see everything with perfect clarity. Upon the moment of death, the position of grace that I now hold through Jesus will be made full and complete. In this life, I live in and hold on to this grace with incomplete strength and, frankly, with a brain that's not big enough to fully understand or to grasp that grace or to fully experience it. Our hope and confident assurance is that this grace will be on the moment of death fully understood and fully grasped, and fully experienced. As a friend of God, rejoice in that hope, the confident assurance that there will come a time in which you fully share in the glory of God. We can say with Paul, for me to live is Christ, and to die 
is gain. In the meantime, however, while we're here, Paul goes on to say that as followers of Jesus, we also rejoice in current sufferings. Yuck, right? I don't like that idea, suffering. And I understand kind of rejoicing in the hope of one day being completely in union with God, but how and why do we experience joy in the darkness and the difficulties that we face right now? And how do those life events produce in us confident assurance, as it says at the end of verse 4? I think it's important and significant to note that suffering does not appear to be optional, unfortunately. Uh, Its appearance should not surprise us. The story of God as told in the Bible assumes that God's people will face difficulty. The brokenness of our world, humanity's sinful choices, and the working of the enemy combine to create conditions that mean suffering is inevitable. Jesus tells his followers, in this world, you will have trouble. And he says, the world has hated me, and if you follow me, it's going to hate you too. Even nature herself groans to be released from the bondage of death and decay. Philip Yancey wrote a book called Soul Survivor in which he quotes Dr. Robert Coles, who said, There's a worldview which says that anxiety, pain, and fear are part of what life is meant to be. That God himself assumed such a life. That he lived under continual anxiety and pain and fear and ended up as a common criminal strung up on a cross and killed. Now, if you take that kind of existence as a very important one, and as a model of sorts, then you're going to have a difficult time becoming as successful as you may have been told you ought to be if you come from a middle-class family. You, you have a dilemma. So suffering as a follower of Jesus is unavoidable, but our suffering begins a process in the believer that results in spiritual maturity, confident assurance, and hope. When we suffer, God is at work in those moments. And as by God's grace we persevere through those sufferings, we find God to be faithful. In addition, we discover that he is closer to us than we could have imagined. Donald Miller writes, Sooner or later, you figure out life is constructed specifically and brilliantly to squeeze a man into association with the owner of heaven. It's a struggle with labor pains and thorny landscapes, bloody hands and a sweaty brow, head and hands, Moments of severe loneliness and questioning. Moments of ache and desire. And all this leads to God. In addition to a deeper understanding of God's nearness to us, God uses our suffering to make us more like Jesus. The image of the refining fire is appropriate here. God, through our suffering, is refining us, deepening our faith, producing character and spiritual maturity. Job, in speaking about his own suffering, said, When he has tried me, I will come forth as gold. So suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance in suffering refines our character and brings spiritual maturity, which produces hope and confident assurance. Now, if you guys are anything like our family, when the lockdown occurred, we began binge-watching a lot of Netflix and or other uh, internet TV things like Hulu things like that. Uh, But there was a public service announcement that kept running during that time, which I really like, and I'm going to show it to you right now. 
I was born during a quarantine. For my mother, it was a very difficult time, but she wasn't alone. Everybody tried to do what they could to help. We can get through this. We all have the strength to do it. I've seen it. <laughs> That's my friend Anita. She's pretty cool, right? She's 100 years old. Isn't she awesome? Uh, does anyone not believe Anita when she says, we have the strength? She says it with such confidence. How does she know that, that we have the strength and that we're going to get through this? How can she say that with such certainty? Uh, I don't think she has some kind of special crystal ball which looks into the future. No, I think Anita knows not because she can look into the future, but because she can look into the past. She's seen it happen before. And our hope, the confident assurance that brings us joy in the middle of suffering, in part is a result of having seen God work before. When we first face struggles, I think we face them with maybe uh, a greater depth of fear and, and trepidation. Our, our faith is challenged, and we rejoice, but it's a rejoicing that sings songs with a bit of a shaky voice and, and maybe prays uh, prayers with, without much confidence. But as we are able to lean into the power of God that is grace to us again and again, and as we see God at work both in us and through us in the trials that we face, we begin to recognize his familiar hand on our lives. As we trust and as he proves faithful, our hope and our confident assurance are strengthened. And so, my brothers and sisters in Christ, let me encourage you this morning. No matter what you're facing, I pray that you will know that God's grace is holding you securely. And that the final victory, that time when we fully experience God's grace to us and share in his glory, that, that time is coming. It's a guarantee. Have hope. And I pray that in the suffering that you now face, you will know that God is close to you and is using those trials to refine you and to bring you to maturity. Have hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is easy for us to take our eyes off from you and to lose sight of the hope and the grace that you've given us through Jesus. It's easy to be distracted by the very real concerns that we face every single day. Father, I ask that you would remind us right now of your love. Fill us with a sense of your grace and your peace and your presence. May our interactions with each other and with the world around us reflect the hope that we have in you. Amen.